This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ben Popji, welcome to Better Reading. <laughs> I'm super excited to talk to you today. Now, I know that you're in Melbourne and it's kind of like a check-in to see how you are, but I also am so intrigued to talk to you about your new book. So I'm going to introduce you. Ben is a comedy writer known for his TV columnists in The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald and political satire for New Matilda, Crikey and The ABC, among others. He has written for the TV shows Reality Check and The Unbelievable Truth. He's the author of Aussie, 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 Error Australis, Super Chef, and The Book of Bloke, which I just really like that title. His latest book is Second Best, The Amazing Untold Histories of the Greatest Runners-Up, which I think is such a great idea. So dead keen to talk about your book, which shines a light on those plucky men and women who through no fault of their own didn't quite get there before everyone else, but did get there before almost everyone else. He lives in Melbourne with his wife and three kids. He's in lockdown, unfortunately. He has a rising sense of panic is that rising sense of panic pre-pandemic or always there oh, oh yes no the rising sense of panic is is permanent permanent right yeah okay. no that's that's <laughs> that's been my bio for years has it all right so tell me a little bit about your career and how you came to be such a prolific writer and then I want to talk about the book well I was told as a child that writing was something I was good at and so I thought, well, that's probably something I should do. But it actually took me quite a while because I sort of, after school, I pussyfooted around not quite knowing what I wanted to do. I went to uni without graduating. I studied philosophy and I studied history. And then I thought, this is getting me nowhere. So I went to TAFE. I did a diploma in professional writing and got a job. I, my first professional writing job was actually writing scripts for training videos, workplace safety videos. Oh, not funny. <laughs> well, th that's the thing. They don't, they don't let you make them funny. It was really frustrating. I wasn't allowed to put jokes in like fire safety videos, unfortunately. You know, I moved, moving on from that, you know, what I wanted to do was obviously something more creative, but it took, it took me a while to actually give it a go because for a long time I just thought, I don't know. I, I have this strange thing where I'm, I'm quite confident in my own ability as a writer, but I'm paradoxically not confident in my ability to convince other people of my ability. So I always think I'm very good, but no one else will think so. So it took me a while to actually think, well, let's, let's actually try this. I like that. I really like that. I'm actually very good because it's usually, I mean, I, I suffered terribly of imposter syndrome terribly you know which is not that is it it's not quite that it's it's more like a 
it's a it's a complete it's a complete lack of belief in my social abilities more than anything else. Mm. It's it's like this thing where I think I, I I honestly do believe in myself as a writer, and I think I I can do great things. But I think if I approach anyone, no one will will want to listen to me when I try to tell them. <laughs> you know what I mean. So were you also funny? So funny and writing came together, like humor, because that's. That to me sounds very typical of comedians, that lack of self-esteem. I've always been funny is, has always been my prime objective. You know, I do occasionally write serious things, but it's not my biggest aim. What I want to do is write comedy. What I want to do is make people laugh. And I think that does stem, it stems very strongly from the fact that I find it very difficult to connect to people on a personal level, just on a human level. Or going in cold, you know, so I've great trouble striking up conversations or making friends with new people because I don't feel like I'm a very interesting person. Do you think that that is typical of comedians or is that just me? I hear that so often that... I think it's very common. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's an interesting thing where often someone who finds it difficult to talk to people, who finds it difficult to be gregarious, it's assumed that it's shyness and it's that they are, that they sort of would rather be alone, that they would rather not socialise. And it's not that, it's this weird thing where you, you, you want the attention, you want to be um, the life of the party, but you just don't know how. And when you have a platform like comedy, when you're getting up on stage, well, once you're on stage, you have to be saying things and you have to be cracking jokes because as, as terrified as you are of looking stupid when you talk to someone and thinking, oh, they'll think I'm an idiot, once you're up on stage, you'll look stupider if you don't say anything. So you have to do it. It's but, true pressure. And I want to talk about your first gig, like how you got there. But um, I'm the opposite. So I'm vivacious and outgoing and love a chat, but I could not get up and do stand-up comedy or stand-up anything for that matter. You know what I mean? So isn't it funny how those, if you've got that personality, you can do yeah. that. But if you've got my personality, you can't yeah. do that. And like it translates to writing as well. It's not just a performance thing because writing is, I've made friends through people who have read things I've, I've seen and they've come to me and said, I love what you write. And then we get talking. You make great friends that way. I could never have made friends with those people if I just, you know, met them at a party because I would have seized up. But once you've made a connection with your work, you feel a greater confidence. You feel like, okay, they like what I do. I have already proven myself on some level to not be completely worthless. So I can engage in conversation with them. Tell me about that journey to, to being a stand-up, well, to being funny and to writing. We've talked a little bit about the writing, but um, talk to me about, you know, doing stand-up comedy. I have a love-hate relationship with it, which is why I sort of, my stand-up career has been periods of furious activity and then long periods of inactivity as I wonder whether I really want to do it or not. Because stand-up, to actually get up and do it, the, the available outlets are you mainly getting up and doing five minutes at a time in a pub, which I don't really love because it gives you so little time to develop ideas, which, uh, you know, I, I much prefer doing festival shows where you can go for an hour and do something really interesting. But stand-up is, it's an interesting thing when you feel like you're funny, 
and people have told you you're funny, but more importantly, people laugh at things you say because people can tell you you're funny all your life. They can say whatever they like. The proof is whether they're actually laughing or not. There's no better <laughs> proof than being up on stage. And this is the wonderful thing about stand-up, of course, and the terrible thing. The terrible thing about stand-up is that as soon as you deliver the joke, you know whether it's worked or not. And that's the great thing about it as well. You get the validation or the negation immediately. And there's no fakery because if you're doing uh, drama or even if you, you're just writing things down, people can tell you what they think. They can lie to you and tell you they liked it when they didn't. When you're performing live comedy, the laugh is there or it isn't. And if it's there, you know it's worked and nothing anyone can tell you can disprove that. If they're not laughing, the same thing. If people tell you they loved it, but there was complete silence in the room, well, what people telling you they loved it is worthless in that case. So it's that instant thing. And, and when it works, I think it's the best feeling in the world. To actually try to make people laugh and have them laugh is the most wonderful thing to hear laughter from something that you've created and that you've delivered. And that is what drives performance because writing is wonderful and writing is the basis of everything. But the reason you want to keep getting up on a stage and, and doing it yourself is because if you can do it right and people laugh, you'll never feel better in your life than when you get a big laugh. I think very often humour is just underestimated in terms of messaging and communication, but in actual fact, it can be a huge and very powerful tool, can't it? Oh, absolutely. It's a great way to say anything mm. with humour. And that's why, you know, I've now written five books about history and they're humorous history books. And I genuinely believe that there are people who are more interested in history now than they were before they read something I wrote <laughs> because oh, yeah, it made sure. them laugh and it engaged them in that way. And also just, it's a wonderful thing. You know, when someone's laughing that their life is a little bit better, even if only for a few seconds. And that's quite a noble calling, I think. So talk to me about Second Best. It's a great idea. Tell me where the idea came from and how you came to write the book. The idea, I'll, I'll be honest, it was um, a thought floated to me by my publisher, Martin Hughes at Affirm Press, yeah. thought of this. And it, it got me thinking and I thought it's a great idea and it, it seemed like it was very on brand for me because I am a lover of the neglected and the the unfairly sidelined and marginalised <laughs> of history. I mean, that's that's where a lot of my other books have come from. I mean, I wrote a book about all the bushrangers who weren't Ned Kelly. I love writing about things where people haven't haven't necessarily been given their due by history. And second best is, is the classic example. And also what fascinated me about the concept is coming second is something you can do in a variety of ways. There's sporting contests where you can just fail to come first. There's discovery, there's achievements like, for instance, climbing Mount Everest, where you can be the second to get there and therefore no one cares that you did it. Which I've got to say is extraordinary in itself because it's yep. usually, if you look at, say, swimming, for instance, yes. second best could be a quarter of a second behind. It's just the thing. You, you do something and you're, this, you're the second best person at something in the entire world and people will shrug you off. People who, if they did it themselves, are, you know, eight millionth in the world. <laughs> <laughs> they shrug with our second 
there's a great unfairness to that. And there's an unfairness, for instance, there's a chapter in the book about the second expedition to climb Mount Everest. And there's a great unfairness in that absolutely everybody knows who was first to climb Everest. Absolutely nobody knows who was second to climb Everest, even though it was just as hard for them as it was for the first. <laughs> Everest didn't get any shorter. It was done. Or easier. Or easier. That's it. It was only a few years after. It's not like amazing new equipment was developed before they did it. They did just as amazing a thing, but they did it a couple of years later. And so I, th I thought it was, it's really worthwhile to look at the people and the things that have come second that we maybe don't know about to give them a bit of credit and also to put forth the message that history is, is, is stories and that's what we love about it. We love the stories about it. It's narrative. And the stories of people who come second are not necessarily any less interesting. Sometimes they're much more interesting. I, I agree with you. And you know what it reminded me of is the fact that, and I'm not saying that they were second, but they were, you know, they didn't have a voice at all, is women behind people. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar principle, isn't it? When you look and a lot, you know, there's been a lot of great stuff done in more recent years about sort of uncovering the stories of women in history and what they've done and what they've contributed and just how fascinating they were. And this is a great thing about history is that the more you dig down, the more people you find, the more stories you find on a human level. But you have to look beyond the obvious, just like looking beyond the headlines, you look beyond the winners of history and you find out. Being a dad so and having children, and obviously they have sporting events or they have tests, maths tests, but how do you communicate that to your children in terms of winning is not the be all and end all? So it's a tough gig, I think. It is tough. It's very difficult when you see, I mean, I have, I have kids. I don't think my kids luckily are not obsessed with winning except when they're playing Fortnite, which is a bit of a worry. <laughs> Uh, but you do try it because the other thing is that when you do, when your kid does win at something, you do get excited and you make a fuss and you say, oh, that's so great. But you have to reconcile that with the message of all the times when they don't win to say it's fine. It doesn't really matter. So that's a fine line to walk saying it's wonderful to win. Congratulations when you win. But when you don't win, oh, we didn't care at all. I think it's just you try to instill a sense of reality in them from early on. And it's probably, look, it's probably easy for me because I've won very little in my life. I've, I've never really been first at anything. Same. So it's, it's not like I have a great mantelpiece of trophies for, for anyone to live up to. And it's not like I have an insanely competitive urge that I'm communicating all the time. I think I, I do sort of give off a vibe of the taking part that counts. I hope I do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Did you, in writing the book, you know how they often say people that, that win, um, particularly athletes or, or anyone, I guess, have particular personality traits there? hardworking there. Uh, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't know that what those traits are because I'm not one of them. But yeah. was there something that you discovered in people that came second? Was there something like a common factor in, in seconds? Well, it's, it's interesting because there was a bit of variation, mm. I think. I think, for instance, someone like Robert Scott, Scott of the Antarctic, his expedition was the second to get to the South Pole. And in a way, I think he had those traits that people associate with winners. He was sort of very single-minded and focused and determined. He lacked, <laughs> he lacked um, a little bit of uh, common sense. And that was why, not so much why he came second as why he never came back alive. So that sort of cost him. I, th- I think in a way, the thing is luck plays a part always in winning and you can be I think if you have a real driven winner's mindset and then through bad luck you don't end up winning it can really have a terrible effect on you it will it will crush you more than it would a a regular person it's quite interesting that to get to second in the world for instance there's a couple of Olympians in my book to get to second in the world at the Olympics requires probably just as much mental strength as coming first. Tiny little margins of of luck, of circumstance, and of just pure physical ability. But also, too, you don't go in it thinking you're going to come second. Exactly. No, in fact, it's, you know, it's probably most contests uh, at the sporting level are divided between there's the people who think they're going to win and the people who know they're not, they're not even going to come close, which is why second can be such a devastating place to be. It can be much less upsetting to come last than to come second because when you're last you know there's nothing you could have done to come first when you're second you get plagued by thoughts if I'd just done this a little bit differently if I changed my routine slightly on the morning of the race maybe but of course the interesting thing is that one of the chapters is about Peter Norman I want to talk about Peter Norman yeah. I'm an incredibly interesting person in history and of course his story isn't about why he came second, his coming second. It's about what he did when he did come second. And there's certainly everything you could read about Peter Norman suggests there's no trace of the sort of the ego or the selfishness that a lot of people associate with champions. But he really was a champion in oh, more ways than one. Absolutely. And and I think uh, treated very badly. Absolutely. Over the years. And, and really, we're only recognising these people now. A lot of people, a lot of our listeners won't know who Peter Norman is. Can you give me just an overview of him? Peter Norman was an Australian athlete, a sprinter, who competed at the uh, 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And he won silver, which in itself, an amazing achievement. There actually are not Throughout history, there are not that many Australians who have reached that height in uh, in track events because it doesn't tend to be our forte. The great thing was that the gold and bronze medal winners of uh, of that particular race, the two hundred meters, were two Americans, African Americans, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who decided that they were going to make a protest on the podium. They were going to do a Black Power salute to protest, you know, against 
the racism in their in their country, the United States, the the, the their country's treatment of of African Americans, and they did so. And they asked before the medal ceremony, they asked Peter Norman basically, "Are you with us?" And Peter Norman said, "Yes, I, I'm with you." And he wore a, a human rights organization badge, and he stood with them. And he actually uh, one of the Americans. They, they planned to wear uh, the uh, black gloves when they did the black power salute. One of the Americans forgot his gloves back at the Olympic Village and it was Peter Norman who suggested, hey, you should you should share them. You should wear one each, which is why when in the famous photos of this black power salute, one of the Americans, uh, I think Smith has his right hand up and Carlos has his left hand up because they're wearing, they're sharing a pair of gloves, which is Peter Norman's idea. So Peter Norman stood with them and when he came off the, the field and there was uproar and controversy obviously a lot of people were very angry quite admirably <laughs> norman didn't attempt to distance himself from the protest at all he he said no i, I support their cause 100 and he never apologized for that for which he was ostracized by australian authorities and and the athletic community there, there's sort of controversy and disagreement about how how official the ostracization was, um, you know, the Australian Olympic Committee, for instance, will deny that it played any part in the fact that he didn't get to go to the next Olympics. Uh, I think others, that's rubbish. Others, others say otherwise. Uh, there's mm. certainly, there were commentators at the time who said, look, Norman's clearly good enough to go to the Olympics. He still, I, I, I believe he still holds the Australian record for the 200 metres, which is pretty amazing. Over, over 50 years. So he was a superb athlete just on a that purely sporting level whose career as an athlete did not go for as long or reach the heights that it should have, I think, because a lot of people in the sporting fraternity pretty much snubbed him. And it was only, oh, geez, less than a decade ago, and unfortunately after he passed away, that the Australian... Uh, Federal Parliament passed a motion uh, acknowledging the injustice and, and apologising to, to his family for what had been done. Funnily enough, America recognised his contribution much earlier. I mean, when the Olympics came to Sydney in 2000, the Australian Olympic Committee didn't invite him, didn't, didn't bring him along to be part of the Games. But the American Olympic, the US Olympic Committee actually stepped in and, and paid for him to come to Sydney to attend the Games. Those races, Smith and Carlos, who were pallbearers at Peter Norman's funeral, they always said, they always acknowledged his part in this extraordinary event and his courage in doing it and his courage, as they said, in sort of withstanding the pressure of a whole country after he came home. Because it's probably similar now. I think now we're getting to it. It's interesting. This year, there's been a lot of sports people making protests on similar issues. And a lot of people still say, keep politics out of sport and, and don't rock the boat. And it's incredible to think that back in 68, <laughs> when probably the the social pressure of, of not bringing in these unpleasant truths to the pure sporting arena was was even greater, that, uh, that these men willing to do it. And, and Peter Norman, a white Australian who, geez, it would have been easy for him to just put his head down and have no part in it at all. I mean, he it would have been so easy and and no one really no one would have criticized him for thinking oh it's not my fight mm. but he believed this is the incredible it's an incredible person who can stand up and look at things that 
are affecting other people far away that don't have to affect that person themselves. And they will say, this is my fight because the fight of, of other people is, is always my fight. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the incredible thing about Peter Norman. And it, it is a shame that he's been uh, greatly lauded, unfortunately, after his death. Mm. And also very, very timely now. Like, you know, when you look at uh, the protests that are happening in the US and particularly exactly. amongst sports people and, and the kneel, you know. Yes. But even that, when that first happened a couple of years ago, people were criticising. And I remember thinking it moved me to my core, you know, and people say, no, no, not in sport. Well, why not in sport? You know, how else can you protest? How else can absolutely. we get Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I think people do criticise sports people and people criticise celebrities and famous people in general for sort of shoving their nose in political affairs. But I think as clumsy and naive as celebrities can be when it comes to social justice issues, I would, I'd take someone who uses their profile to try and do good over someone who never does. When it comes to politics in sport, I mean, it's, God, it would, it would be lovely if you could keep politics out of sport, but it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And I think back to apartheid in South Africa and how a sporting boycott was such a big part of the sanctions against South Africa and it was truly significant. And the thing is, you couldn't, in that case, you couldn't keep politics out of sport. There were, that, that wasn't even an option because non-white people were literally being prevented from participating in the sport. Politics was imposing itself on sport as it so often does. And really what you say when you say keep politics out of sport is we want sports people to be the servants of politicians. We want sports people to do the bidding of politics. And politicians love to have themselves photographed with sports people, don't they? The Prime Minister invites the Australian cricket team to his house for Christmas. They love the, the photo op on the podium. And Scott Morrison going to the football during a pandemic. I mean, it's incredible, you know. It's heartened me, uh, you know, that particular chapter in the book. But, you know, you'll know that this is going on at the moment in the US is there's a lot of, I don't know which league it is, the football league, where they're using stadiums as polling booths. They're clearing them out. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's the uh, the NBA. Mm-hmm. I mean, how significant is that? that? They've, because... they've cancelled games in protest. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is, and the amazing thing is that obviously there's a lot of argument. It's very controversial. But the amazing thing is that there are team owners backing the players over this, which is which is, which is pretty incredible. And I just think it is it it can't be a bad thing when the members of a community, you know, the the African American community in this case, who have achieved very high status in a society that is very prejudiced against the community. They are thinking of all of their brothers and sisters who have not achieved that status. And they're saying, we're going to use our position to make a noise about this, which is what Smith and Carlos did and Peter Norman did in 68. Mm. It's very Uh, powerful. It is very powerful. And I think what it really reminds you of is no matter how good you are at sport, you're still a person and the, the world affects you and you affect the world. And you can't expect a, per, a human being to stop being a human being, to stop having feelings and thoughts and opinions just because they're very, they have a, an unusually talented body, put it that way. Mm, mm, <laughs> your, brain, your brain doesn't stop working in the same way because your body works in a spectacular way. 
Oh, look, Ben, I mean, I, I could talk for another hour. We've got to wrap it up. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Uh, the book is called Second Best. I really, I, I love this book. I think everybody should go out and get a copy and read it. There's more in it um, than just being a runner-up. You're a fabulous writer. Um, and I should point out, we've, we've dealt with some pretty weighty issues in the last quarter of an hour. It is funny. It is. I was just about to say, you're dealing with really serious issues and it's very, very, it's laugh out loud as well. Thank you. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Can't thank you enough for your time um, and thank you for joining me today. Pleasure is all mine, Cheryl. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.